Welcome to the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. We come to you weekly from Shilling Speakers Toastmasters Club. An online club with global membership in District 91 in the UK. Welcome to this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. This week it's me, Pat Caslin. Me, Philippa Gray. And me, Violetta Saladiene. So what's our big ideas this week, guys? Violetta, what's your big idea? Oh, this week, since it was uh, quite uh, sunny weather, so it uh, reminded me about upcoming spring and everywhere lovely daffodils and crocuses and snowdrops burst into life. And it means one thing, that's that spring. I really um, in, was enjoying the whole week just um, observing the nature and observing first sights of uh, upcoming spring mornings and late afternoons are filled with lovely bird songs as you can uh, also probably um, noticed and also days are getting longer and longer and more often we wake up in a beautiful sunshine and with longer days we can have longer walks with our children or dogs and more outdoor activities in general so it still gets chilly in the evening, but uh, I do really enjoy um, the upcoming spring. That's my idea of the week. What about you, Philippa? Well, guess what? My thoughts are all about spring as well. We've had some amazing sunshine. Yes, I was thinking just how much I've been enjoying it. What a difference it makes. I can add catkins to your list, Violetta. We've got catkins out on the hazels in our garden and our viburnums in flower. I've been out a lot in the fresh air and just makes me feel so much better. Just a bit of gentle exercise, just walking around locally. And yesterday I started off in a really bad mood because somebody had upset me. And by the time I'd walked about three quarters of a mile, I was fine again. It really is therapeutic. Yes. Uh, great minds think alike, I think. Go on, Pat. You had a different thought? Well, yeah, I'm probably more confined to indoors, but I did get out last week for my first, uh, what, what I well, walk rather, it's kind of push on my wheelchair, you know, and it's it's interesting. I've been doing this last year all over the summer and what started off as a, oh, probably an hour and a quarter to three kilometers, just under three kilometers push up and down the hills around here. The um, it ended up being after the summer and doing some training ended up being um, 30 minutes. So I was pretty pleased about that. But I went out um, this week and or last week rather and with one of my friends and had a walk around and it got me back to probably an hour and a bit to get around because, you know, I'd lost all that fitness and, um, you know, muscle tone. So. I've been thinking to myself, I need to get out and do that, get some exercise, lose some weight, get, you know, get a proper diet, get more sleep. So that's my um, think there's a spring in that as well. But probably for most of the time, I've been reading a book that I got on education by a blogger called Alfie Cohn, who's a serious thinker in education in the U.S., and that's something maybe I'll do a soapbox on a number of parts of that, that even though I've done already soapboxes on education, but maybe delve into some different parts of that. So there's my two big ideas this week. That's great. I'm thinking I too will do a soapbox on education. I've got a bit of a different take to yours, possibly because things are um, so challenging for teachers in the UK. But 
I will save that for another week because this week it is Violetta's turn on the soapbox. So join us for part two in a few minutes. This week we will be talking about education. We've decided to have a debate during part two. So uh, rejoin us for part two to hear our debate on education. Dear listeners, in our second part of the podcast, today we're having a debate, a debate about education and what does it mean to be educated and what does it mean to have an education and to have knowledge? Where is the difference? Is there any difference? There are thousands of questions regarding that. And listen to us now and you will find out many different views. Starting with Pat, Kathleen, what do you think about education and being educated and just having knowledge? So I think that our education system, what we call an education system, isn't really educating um, children at all or young adults at all. What it's doing is that it is training them to pass tests. Because at the end of the education system, or what's called the secondary education system anyway, the, the focus is on what marks you get overall in your tests so that you could then get a place in college. And college is the only way that they will measure is what marks you get in the test. But to be educated is to not just be able to pass tests. It's actually to have an interest in what you're doing and what you're reading about. It's to have an understanding of what you're reading about. It's to be able to, to debate it with your colleagues or with your friends or with your, your classmates. It's to have time to really sit down and get immersed in it, to, to follow the things that you're interested in so that you end up getting a deeply um, into things that that you decide you want to to look at, that you decide that you want to understand, you decide that you want to f- follow, and cooperating with your um, classmates and to come up with asking the questions that you think need to be answered, um, so that you're you're interested in what you do, you're immersed in what you do, you're thinking deeply about what you do, and you're debating that with um, your your classmates. And that can be, and that should have some element of self-direction, such as, for example, the Young Scientist exhibition that I talked about recently, where students self-direct their learning and get involved in projects that take them into different ways of finding questions that are important to them that need to be answered, and then finding answers to those questions that are much, much more than a bunch of facts learning. So learn these facts and get ready to repeat them in an exam. And the exam is just a hurdle, you jump over it and either you get a score, you don't get a score. And all you're doing there is learning off facts. This is not knowledge, it's just facts. It's it's schedules of different facts about different um, disciplines with very little for most students, except the very good ones for very little understanding of the subject matter. And in many cases, ones that they will immediately forget when they finish their exams. This isn't an education. This is um, an accumulation of facts for the purposes of passing a test. um, And that's called an education. That is not being educated. But do you think um, your view, is that applicable to all disciplines? Because some disciplines are very strict and some disciplines can be applied with the projects. 
So my first question. The second question, how you unify, because some standards should be done in projects and still they have to be evaluated or because uh, otherwise, uh, what is the starting point and what we get out of this? Uh, in any way, evaluation should be, even though it's not always um, objective what we get. Do we want children that are stressed out about passing tests, that are competing with each other for relative placings, that are being bell curved so that the and and a bell curve is an appalling indictment of the education system because if we if the education system can only um, bring children to a level at which most of them um, are not really improving at all they are down at a relatively low level some of them are doing very well the bell curve the purpose of education should be to ensure that all of the children get to a certain level in whatever topic they 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 are they're working on. The yes, projects are, are good, but I, do, I think that if we want children to grow, if we want them to be capable of getting on in the world, if we want to be capable of making their own decisions, of understanding the important questions to ask, well, then teaching them a bunch of facts isn't going to do that. It's not even going to get close to that. Um, and yes, we th there, there is some need to objectively identify how children have performed or have they learned the subject have they got involved in 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 a in the subject in a way that they've picked up a good understanding of it well they think of the exam in a slightly different way think of it not as a hurdle but think of the, uh, the of the exam or testing as testing and testing and retesting until the uh, there is a really good understanding of that so i think there are different ways to educate um but we've got to get away from this um, this sense of standardized test, because all the standardized tests do is they, they test that which lends itself to measurement. They measure that which lends itself to measurement. They don't measure the things that are hard to measure. Um, and, and sometimes those things are subjective and much of life is subjective. It's not black and white. So I think we just, we need to really seriously rethink it. I, yeah, I agree that we need a rethink, but I listen to you talking, Pat, and it makes complete sense. And then I read a Facebook post from a friend of mine who's a teacher at the moment. And then there was an article in one of the UK national newspapers this week about the realities of teaching. And it is heartbreaking. It is so hard for teachers. Uh, UK schools are underfunded. They've got so many challenges due to the impact of lockdown on children's health. And I just wonder how on earth we'd ever get to the radical reorganisation. I think we probably need to not exactly start small, but start realistically. I'm also thinking about my nephew who just was asked to uh, cope with an updated curriculum one year too many. And he gave up teaching, moved into accountancy because he just one year he was asked to do this. Next year he was asked to do that. So I think we need to look at schools and look at how we can help the teachers get through the current situation and also look at the pupils. I often ask myself, well, why didn't I pay attention to that at school? And why didn't I understand how fascinating a subject it was? I think the answer was 
I was too busy growing up. I wasn't ready to, well, specifically engage with geography or biology. And we can't ask teachers to teach things that individual students aren't ready to learn yet. I think we have to have a concept, really seriously think about lifelong learning and stop telling the academic people, pupils, that they are clever because, you know, I was almost top of the class and I'm my adult life has been realising that I'm not as clever as I was told, uh, which is fine. It's been interesting. Fortunately, uh, I've got a sort of mindset that doesn't mind learning that, but I think it's probably quite devastating for some people. And give them a vision of what a rounded adult should be capable of, but also the understanding that we don't expect them to get there by the time they leave the college. They don't have to appreciate literature as a teenager. You know, many teenagers before them have not appreciated it and it's not been a problem. They've come to it when they're ready. So, yes, by all means, get away from the standardization. But we can't be too ambitious. Possibly we need to recognize which children are going to benefit from just curling up with a good book and really enjoying it, and which ones are going to benefit from learning from their friends how to do practical stuff and really enjoy that, and make sure they all understand that neither way is better than the other, um, and we all need practical skills, we all need computer skills, we all need communication skills, but they will have time to learn it. So that's my thoughts on education. Do you think, Philippa, that it's not possible to integrate practical skills and communication skills and computer skills into work that is interesting for school children or schoolgoers, that is work that they um, enjoy doing, it's work that they cooperate with each other, with others on, um, and it's work in which they are engaged with, genuinely engaged with, as distinct from work which they're forced to do and um, directed towards them, which they don't get an opportunity to, um, to, to discuss or debate um, or to work that they're not interested in, work that is imposed upon them and work that at the end of the day is only subject to learn the facts and pass a test. That's the, that's a huge part of the reason that most schoolgoers aren't engaged because they, they're not interested in what they're doing. They're told what to do for the purpose of passing to test. And there's loads of evidence um, and papers written on the fact that if the purpose is just to pass a test, the, the children don't engage with the subject. They don't get involved in it. You know, this is the filling the pale concept of education <clears throat> as distinct from lighting the spark concept of education. We are definitely filling the pale. We're not lighting any sparks. No, and we should be trying to light those sparks. What I'm saying is I'm not sure I ever... I had some very good teachers at school. I'm not sure they were the sort of teachers you would like. And uh, nobody was asking them back when I was at school to combine practical skills and communication skills. And maybe it's because of my education, 
I'm not sure that anybody could put together a series of lessons that incorporated everything you've listed and teach all that to someone like me. I really feel it has taken me an awful long time to grow up. Um, and I look around and I'm not convinced I'm particularly uh, bad at growing up. But yes, it's be very hard on the teachers to try and teach things that people just aren't ready to learn. And I say maybe it's confidence that we really need to give people. Confidence that they can cope with adult life, that they will learn to use laptops and they won't be uh, left behind. It's not impossible to get a good job. You know, depending on the economic situation, it can be challenging. The, uh, there's a myriad of careers. I had a very narrow idea of what a good career would be. Hopefully that's not a problem anymore, but mm, looking around, I'm not sure. And I think there are ways in which schools are doing an excellent job. Whenever I interact with local school kids, they seem to me to be absolutely delightful, um, enthusiastic. I sometimes have to walk past the school just as it's turning out and they are all polite, considerate, uh, having a good time. Uh, there's one local school where I think it's about 95% of the pupils all walk or cycle to school, which is a great lesson in life. So, yes, I totally agree we need to shake things up, not too fast, and just not give pupils the message that they need to get to any sort of standard um, during their school years. They need to leave school with enthusiasm, confidence, and determination curiosity yeah absolutely that will get you a long way interpersonal skills um you know i'm used to dealing with quite mature adults who i think could improve their interpersonal skills um uh, it's good an argument as i've heard for yes. why it should be learned in childhood well my, i'm saying i don't think i was capable of learning that in childhood I'm sure everybody tried to give me a vision of what a good, useful adult was capable of. But now I'm your typical nerd. I just want to get my head into a spreadsheet or write a computer program. And, yeah, all this talking, waste of good um, data analysis time. Oh, I should I say that none of these uh, friends, they are friends. They're definitely lacking in communication skills. They're not, none of them are mutual friends. So all our mutual friends are very lovely and have great communication skills. What do you think, Violetta? Well, I think uh, uh, <clears throat> when you had this discussion, there were a lot of thoughts going up in my mind on uh, separate things. Like when you say that uh, pupils, uh, they have to learn more deeply about one or another topic they are interested in. But a controversy in my mind is that not all the pupils want to learn deeper i have two children they are like a day and night my daughter she loves digging deeper and i agree with you in that point that they should have projects and uh, interests and so on but another one my son he just flies the surface he doesn't want to learn deeper he just wants okay give me that test, tick the box and forget everything. And yeah, otherwise, well, I think it's a very 
important questions that you we're discussing today, but also very complicated because every person is so different and have to have its own approach to education, to learning. I agree that testing system is not good one. It doesn't test. You can, I don't know, test basics, but there are, because we deal with people, there are always ways to cheat that system, especially testing. So uh, th this problem I think is very deep. I do agree with you, Pat, that we need to change the system, that we need a change. But uh, uh, one solution, I don't think it's possible. There should be many, um, many wise heads in one room evaluating different angles of all this educational system. That's how my thoughts and my position. So I think you put your finger on something there when you said your children are very different and all children are very different and they're individuals, but yet we put them through the same system. We ask them to think the same way. We ask, we give them the same tests and we treat them as if they are processed um, the, the processed in an education system. They're not, they're, they're processed. They're, they're not really stimulated if they are not, if they're not getting into it, like your son, if they're not getting into it and their curiosity isn't being stimulated, well then, how do you expect them to learn? Um, if the teacher can't stimulate a curiosity in them or find the special quality in the child that gets them curious, that gets them interested, that um, that gets them up in the morning because they're doing something that they want to do. Um, and this is a huge issue with education is that there is no element of self-directed. It is all externally motivated. There's no intrinsic motivation to be educated, except it comes from the exceptional child. And this is a serious problem. But I think maybe we might come back on this topic and get more focused on maybe where some of the solutions are. But unless anybody has got a final word, Philippa or Violetta, let's um, perhaps leave it um, at that point for today. That's the end of part two of this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. And in the absence of a guest, I think we might try this debating some topic between us in the future. And part three, we have Violetta on the soapbox. Welcome to part three of this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. This week, it's Violetta Saladiena on the soapbox. Violetta. Thank you, Pat. Um, yes, this week I was um, reading a lot about uh, speech delivery. As uh, Toastmasters, we are always interested how to deliver in better way um, our speeches, how we can improve it, and um, how can our speeches become um, from good to great. So I think, um, uh, well, um, there are three main parts of uh, a great delivery. The content uh, of the great speech, sorry, the content, the structure, and the delivery. The delivery is considered to be a crucial component and of the effective speech. And strong delivery, effective delivery, is engages the audience. So um, as I found out, there are three um, main components for speech delivery. First one, vocal variety. Second one, conversational tone. 
and third one, effective pauses. So vocal variety is the instrument a speaker uses to convey the message. And we, uh, the better we master it, uh, the better we can engage the audience. So how to do that? We can speak fast or slow, in high tone or in low. With voice, we can convey different moods to the audience. Like when, we, when a speaker speaks at a fast pace, conveys energy and action. Do you remember um, football games when uh, some uh, footballers are running fast and trying to score a goal? Um, like an example, it can be uh, like this. Messi runs, pass two more kicks and tucks into the net for the third time of that. Nothing less than equivalent of footballing bird. A paradise this man. Scoring, scoring. So with this, when we rely on the story, the faster pace would support physical actions. And physical actions can be different. Uh, it can be driving, picking up the phone, running to help. With the slower, more deliberate pace, conveys less energy, less action, promotes more serious aspect to a speech. It's designed to get your audience thinking about what you say and what the meaning of your words and sentences. And then uh, the speaker, in this case, connects with the audience on emotional level. For example, it was a cloudy winter morning. Wind was battling outside, but inside, near the fireplace, calm and peaceful figure of an old Yorkshire terrier named Emma was lying motionless. She was gone, gone. So you can see now that there are two different bases and uh, tones. And with this vocal variety, we can transfer our mood. But vocal variety is a skill that requires practice. Have you ever recorded a voicemail message? Were you happy with the first version of it? Definitely not. We repeat and repeat it again. Maybe the third or the tenth can be the one we like. And now the second element of delivery, conversational tone. Imagine you are chatting comfortably in a cafe with your best friend. You are relaxed and deliver your lines. Sometimes you stumble over a word or even forget what you are going to say. Delivering a speech should be viewed the same way, using a conversational tone adds credibility and believability to the speech. A conversational tone sounds genuine. It sounds more natural. Notice your conversational style and see how varied your tone is and how animated it might be, or sometimes even calm. A conversational tone is a great way to deliver a speech and that one should be practiced absolutely. The third element, of the delivery is effective pause. I think it's obvious that we always do pauses, but sometimes it's very good to remind ourselves uh, that pauses in speeches are absolutely essential. There are a number of reasons for pausing. First, that we can take a breath, we need a pause. Then the second one, we highlight an important part of the sentence with a pause, and also we can use a pause at the end of the sentence or a paragraph or a story or a question. 
And by this, we give time to the audience to make sense of what you have said or asked. Pauses can sometimes be mightier than words. It is suggested to practice pausing. Eric Fitzpatrick in his book says that the good way to practice them is by saying in your mind, 1001, 1002, 1003. And the author says, don't worry, you won't say it out loud. So in summary, there are three important elements of a speech delivery. The first one, vocal variety. The second one, conversational tone. And the third one, effective pauses. A strong and effective delivery is what engages audience. Note it, practice it, practice it and use it. Elevate your speech from good to great. That's all for today. And back to you, Pat. Thank you very much, Violetta. Some great advice there on giving a speech and um, using the tools that are that if you're aware of them, that you can get value from. So that is the end of this week's edition of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. So it's goodbye from me, Philippa Gray. And goodbye from me, Violetta Solodiena. And goodbye from me, Pat Caslin. See you next week. That's it for today from the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share with your friends.